Today we're going to be in the book of Colossians. The last time we saw, two Sundays ago, we went into uh, the meat of chapter uh, 3, and it's, we saw what not to do. We saw what it meant to put off the old man, the old sinful nature, the old carnal nature. And today, we will see that if we are in the Spirit and we are leading that new life, what we should be doing. Starting with verse 12, 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So Paul starts out with, therefore, as the elect of God. If we're truly a child of God, then what we're going to see, this fruit, is, is, is what we should be bearing as believers. Now, it's kind of like a checklist here, and I don't want to just kind of blow through a bunch of characteristics or personal attributes. I really want to take this apart. Um, we saw, again, two Sundays ago what not to do. And the checklist, if we had a lot of checks from some of those things, it would be like, gee, I need to work on myself. i got some issues here. Now, today, this is the good checklist. So hopefully, as we go through these, we ask ourselves, do I have this? Is this an attribute that I, that I have? So let's go through them. The first one is tender mercies, or better known as compassion. A genuine heartfelt care for others, not just words. Do we have the urge to help? When we see somebody in need, when we hear about a need, do we just ignore it? Or do we really, is there something stirred up inside of us to have that compassion, that urge to, you know, Lord, what can I do? Even if it's just... I, I need to pray. I need to stop and pray for that person. It's, it's, it's beyond me, but that, that, that urge to help. Kindness. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. This is charitable or benevolent treatment. Now, compassion and kindness really also fall under James chapter 2. What is James, the premise of James' book? James, doesn't, James says that we are saved by faith, but he said saving faith, okay, also produces works. And in James chapter 2, James says, if you see somebody who's cold, who, who needs, you know, raiment, who needs something to keep them warm, or they're hungry, and you just kind of look at them and you say, be warm, be fed, see you later, I got other things to do. And I'm paraphrasing, but this is what James says. He goes, where's your faith? You know, you, just, you can just ignore that person and, and not have that, that desire to help. So you see these two qualifications are, are tied up in James 2 also. The third thing, humility. This is a behavior resulting from a person's understanding of their standing before God. We talked about false humility, but this is something where humility doesn't overemphasize me, even in a degrading way. Oh, poor me, or I can't believe God would use me, to the point of embellishment, to where now Jesus isn't the focus anymore, but we're the focus. Okay, This humility is the understanding that it's just a picture of the cross. Jesus was lifted up on the cross, and there's an expression that says the ground at the foot of the cross is all level. That's where we stand. Jesus is lifted up, and we all stand on the same level looking up at him. So once we understand, once I understand that everybody here is equal to me, and I really believe that, and the only one who's above me is Jesus Christ himself, there's a picture of humility. It's a mindset that we have to grasp. Because when you get the mindset, your actions follow suit. Okay? 
Four, meekness or gentleness, which is also a fruit of the Spirit. This is the opposite of, I would look at the opposite of rough or harsh. There's a gentleness here, right? Can you handle others with kid gloves if need be? Can you handle others gently if need be? As a police officer, I've run into situations where people were really a victim of a crime, especially someone who was a victim of a sexual assault. And I just have to stop and say, Lord, how do I handle this situation? Because obviously this is a situation where I need to, to put myself aside and be as gentle and as, as concerned and caring, and my whole being has to say gentleness. And there are going to be people that you run into in your life where you're going to have to put yourself on the side and be gentle and handle these people very delicately. Gentleness. Five, long-suffering or patience. This is also a fruit of the Spirit. I kind of wish it wasn't <laughs> because I have a problem with this, you know, patience, long-suffering. And I think that if I took a poll and asked you, most of you would have trouble with this, especially in our fast-paced society. We're... we're, we're pressured by our society to just get up in the morning and get revved up and zoom, go out the door, right? So this is very important for us uh, to definitely develop over our lives as a Christian. Continual attitude of even putting up with a situation or even a person that you really don't have to, that you're not obliged to. This is an endurance issue. And this is something that, again, out of the nine qualities under the fruit of the Spirit, this is a difficult one for us in our society. If we lived in a, a nation where it was you know, low-paced uh, and uh, agricultural and, and you fished for a living and farmed the land, it might be easier to do. But we live in the United States. You know, Get up and go, and then when you're done, go some more. It's just the way it is. Bearing with one another. I actually find the way that's worded, I find that humorous. Bearing with one another. Did you ever deal with a person who just got on your last nerve? <laughs> that they just irritated you so much, that some smiles, that you're, you have to bear with them, right? Now, when I ask you that question, we should also look at ourselves and say, when have I been the irritant? See, that's the beauty of it. You know, we laugh, it's funny, you think somebody comes to mind that really irritates you. However, how many times have we been the irritant to somebody else? I can be intense. I don't wear this thing on my ear because I want to be Joel Osteen. I wear it because I can't, I'm just intense. You know, I, I stand up behind a pulpit. I got to move around. It's just me. And sometimes I might have irritated some of you personally with my intensity. I don't mean to offend you, but it's just, it's just part of my nature. So my question is to us, look at ourselves and say, what part of my life have I been an irritant? Or, or someone else had to bear with me. You've got to look at it both ways, right? Number seven, forgiveness. We must forgive as Christ also forgave. The Bible says, right in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It goes uh, both ways. There's also a, a parable where Jesus basically says, you know, the parable of the servants, one of the servants, where the master forgives him of his debt, and he's free, this great debt that he owed to the master. And then he goes to his fellow servant and wants his money, which was a pittance compared to what he owed the master. And he didn't get it, so he shakes the guy down and he roughs him up a little bit. And the master finds out and says, I just forgave you this incredible debt, and you're it, it, it piddling over this stupid little amount. And again, I'm paraphrasing. But God does that with us. He's forgiven us of so much sin in our lives that we ought to forgive others, and it's really a pittance 
what you do to me or I do to you compared to what we did to God when we've sinned. And Jesus took those sins on his body on the cross 2,000 years ago. So forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Furthermore, Luke 17 says, Jesus says, forgive your brother. Continue to forgive your brother. But he says, if he repents, it's a conditional statement. Now, why do I throw that in there? Because there is forgiveness from the heart. But without true repentance, just giving someone back privileges and uh, trust that they may have broken, all that does is fosters bad behavior. There needs to be true repentance. There needs to be, and what does repentance look like? That heartfelt, you know what, you're grieved because of what you've done to somebody. It's that heartfelt, these, a lot of, these come from the heart, understand, okay? Uh, there's, a, again, the trust issue, the privilege issue. Um, if you just restore those things without repentance, you're not loving the offender. Let me give you an example. If you had a babysitter, right, and you had a nanny cam in your house, and you found out that, you know, you looked at the nanny cam the next day and your babysitter roughed up your kid and they, they, they abused your child, okay, you could forgive that babysitter. But would you have them babysit your kid next Saturday night? You'd be a fool if you did. That trust, those privileges have to be built up and restored. There's truly a heartfelt forgiveness, just like the prison system. We can forgive those who have hurt us and maybe have done something so heinous that they go to jail. But would we say, okay, I forgive you, let them all out? That's crazy. It's crazy. There's got to be a true, well, in the prison system, there's got to be, um, um, you know, uh, you have to, there's a punishment aspect there. There's a correctional aspect there. Okay, and, and it's, it's the way the same way we deal with people. We can forgive from the heart, but we wouldn't necessarily immediately restore those privileges and that trust that has to be built up again. Verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love. There's four different types of words in the Greek for love, uh, four different uh, aspects of love, and, and each one has a, a different degree but the word love that's used here is agape, okay, that highest, you've heard that before, that divine, that, that perfect love, right, which we, none of us should flippantly say, I have that agape for other people, because that's a, a real, on a hierarchy scale, that is a real deep love, right, that's the kind of love that God has for us. Um, I was, last week I was also, uh, had the pleasure of officiating a wedding ceremony, and uh, one of the things we read in 1 Corinthians 13 was, Paul talks about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And he says it's the bond of perfection, because love really is, is the glue that holds all these other qualities together. Now, I use a construction example, because I think it's a good example, but if you ever heard of particle board, a lot of things are made of particle board. Your cabinets probably are made of it, and, and when you look at it from the side, it looks kind of like sawdust and cork but it's compressed wood. And what it is is particle board is sawdust and wood chips and just stuff that nobody else would use and really has no, it really is not strong enough to do anything else with. They put it in a big vat, right? And then they put a resin or a glue and they mix it together. And when it comes out, they make sheets of, of, of pieces of wood that you would put cabinets up and things like that with it. Particle board can actually be very, very strong. But without that resin or that glue to hold all those other pieces together, it doesn't do anything. You can't use it for anything. So what he's saying here is this is what love is. Love is that resin. Love is the thing that holds all those other qualities together, right, and, and makes them strong. 1 Corinthians 13, I'll just read a few verses, starting with verse 1. This is how important love is. 
Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So many people want to speak in tongues, and that's great if you have that gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, but, but Paul says, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What good is speaking in tongues if I don't have love? And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, something as Christians, certainly I'd like to have all of that, right? So that it could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So love is the bond of perfection. That's why Jesus went to the cross. It was motivated out of love. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So a summary here. Put on these things. Bear with these people. Forgive. Love equals the glue. There's a progression here. And let the peace of God rule and be thankful. Being thankful is often an indicator of the peace of God. Some time ago, my wife and I were in prayer, and, you know, before we went to bed, we prayed, and, you know, everything was just going wrong. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Lord, it was like a prayer of desperation. I was like, oh, Lord, help me. Everything's going wrong. What was me? Sort of. And amen. And then we were about to go to bed. My wife really puts up with me, doesn't she? So I said, you know what, babe, I don't feel right about this. I said, let's go back. Let's, let's talk to the Lord again. So I said, you know what, Lord? And I just thankful, thank you for, I made a list of all the things I could think about. My salvation, my marriage, my son, my home, the fact that my cars start in the morning. Um, you know, just a whole bunch of, right? Simple things we take for granted. I have air conditioning. It still works. It's on the blink, but it's doing a good job. Um, you know, and then I, I gave the list of, Lord, thank you that I don't have these things. We've been living out in the woods for eight years. We didn't get Lyme disease. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But when you really start to thank God for the awful things that you don't have, at least up until this point, praise God. So I actually, when we were done praying, I felt a peace. Man, this is so true. Once I realized and I meditated on all the things I was thankful for and my family could be thankful for, the peace of God ruled in my heart. I, went, I probably slept a lot better that night, too. But, so my question is, do you have peace? And many of you, you know, you come in, some of you have been Christians for a long time, have a strong walk, walk with the Lord. Some of you maybe are new to this whole Christianity, walking with God thing, and you're, uh, you know, you're taking baby steps. And some of you are somewhere in between. But my question is, do you have peace? Do you want peace? Meditate on thankfulness. Meditate on it. It's like when you meditate on it, to me it reminds me of when you have the last bite of a really awesome dessert and there's none left and you put it in your mouth and you, man, it tastes so good, you don't even want to swallow it. You just want to savor that flavor. To me, when I meditate is I think about God's word, I think about maybe thankfulness and I roll it around in my head and I roll it around in my head and I think about it, and I say it, and I memorize it, and I think about it, and I pray about it. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. That's meditation. David spoke a lot about meditating. He had so much time as somebody who tended sheep, you know, probably didn't have very good conversations with the sheep. So he had an awful lot of time to talk to the Lord and to meditate on his word and to meditate on God. And you see the incredible relationship David had early on in his life with God. And those hungry years, right, that David had where things weren't easy in his life. But you saw that when David was the king and things were really good in his life 
and the wars were going okay, and he didn't have to be in the, in the battle. He was up on his rooftop looking around, looking at the ladies bathing on the roofs. And what happened? He fell into an adulterous relationship. So when we meditate, when we're hungry for God, you know what? We keep out of trouble. When we're thankful, we have the peace of God that rules in our hearts. It all comes together. It's beautiful. I love it. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Teaching and admonishing is the result of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Now, you really can't have one without the other. And, you know, I don't want to be real critical here, but to go to a church where all you hear is happy messages and every time you, you leave you're kind of walking on air and you think you're wonderful... It's not the place to go because teaching and admonishing always go together. We need to, the more we learn about Christ, the more he dwells richly in our hearts, the more we're going to be convicted because we're sinners. Doesn't that make sense? And the more we're going to look at God, we're going to look at Christ and that standard, and we're going to want to be, emulate him and try to achieve that standard. We always want to be going in that direction. So teaching and admonishing, they go together. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs when you know when you read this, you look at that and say, "So I have to sing to Christians and not talk to them." <laughs> Let me explain what that means. There's actually an interesting historical note here. Most of you know who've been Christians for a while that many of the psalms were set to music. Why was that done? I'm sure, Dave knows, <laughs> but there's a few reasons. Number one, you would memorize God's word together, or better, right? When you sing a song and you you, you memorize the tune. Sometimes it just you, know, you actually learn things about God if it's biblical versus maybe saying, I can't memorize this scripture. But then you're singing a worship song in your head when you leave here and you're, you just have a theological statement that just went through your mind, right? So number one, it was set to music to memorize God's word better. Number two was for teaching. And number three, it was to pass on to the next generation. And this was also carried through to the New Testament. Very interesting history here again. Um, it was employed by the children of Israel. They would set the, a lot of God's word to music. It was employed, as I was reading a lot about the Roman Empire recently, the slaves in the Roman Empire would also do this, right? They didn't have a whole lot of freedom, so whatever they could learn from God's word, they would maybe set it to music and, and pass it on and all. And even the slave songs in America, if you study uh, slave history in America, a lot of those songs are popular today, some of them went into blues, right? Some of them were taken and brought into the civil rights movement. But a lot of those slave songs were they would sing those songs and teach their children and pass it on. It's amazing how humans can overcome uh, difficulties. And sadly enough today, slavery still exists. We don't think about it because we live in America and we're past that ugly history. But around the world, there's still slavery still exists. And I'm sure uh, Christians are singing those songs. So it's, it's to build us up, all right? Verse 17. And whatever you do and word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Word, whatever you do in word and deed, okay, that pretty much amounts to every facet of our lives. And the question is, are our lives characterized in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You've heard the expression, if Christianity was illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict us? If right now Christianity was made illegal and they were looking for the, to hunt the Christians down, could your life, the exemplification of your life, be 
enough to convict you or you would be arrested by the authorities. It kind of reminds me, too, of default email and computers. It always goes back to that email address, right? So you leave here today, you visit relatives. In word and deed, are you, would they know that you're a Christian? Not to be overbearing, and not, I'm not saying to go out there and, and, and attack people, but I'm saying, does your life represent in your actions and your words, you know, um, a Christian life? Now, when you go to work tomorrow morning and you go to your job, is, is church kind of a, a, an afterthought because it's over? And, you know, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world. It's a rat race. You know, let's jump into it. Not saying that you shouldn't achieve goals, but do we act in our jobs, in our professions, in word and deed, that Jesus permeates that? So we have to look at every facet of our lives. Those of you who go to school, you know, especially if you're young, listen, we all suffer from peer pressure, especially when we're young. I remember those days. They were awful, right? The, your peers could pretty much make you do anything if you wanted to be cool. So the point is, especially you young people, does your life reflect in word and deed that you're a Christian? And let me tell you something. You may get um, made fun of. You may get chastised in the beginning. But if you hold out long enough, I tell you what, give it a try. Eventually, they'll respect you because they'll see, you know what, you don't care what the, all the other cool kids are doing. You're, you're steadfast. You're immovable. They might not agree with you, but they will respect you for it. So word and deed, it's important. Verse 18 and 19 Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, I prayed about doing this book, and then I saw this, and I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> but we're going to have fun with this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting into the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Now, what you see is um, um, you know, po- positive and negatives here, back and forth. Wives and husbands, fathers and children, masters and servants. So we're going to see that all these relationships have two sides to the same coin. And we're going to try to, actually I'm going to do a lot here and try to really take this apart. Some have taken this out of context. Um, some churches have taken this out of context. And um, they, treat, they, they treat women as a lot of the world treats women. And that's not, that's not right. Okay, this is an excuse for a man to be a dictator. Uh, let's understand what this means. It also says in Ephesians 5, Wives, respect your husbands. Submit to your husbands, respect your husbands. And in Ephesians uh, 5, it says to, for men to treat your wives like Christ treated the church. Okay, and we'll, we'll kind of go into some of that. There was a book written called Love and Respect that I read by a doctor, uh, Emerson Egerix, and it was biblically based. And he explained how, this is a really good book, he explained how men and women are wired, how we kind of were made and how God sets the rules up and how we're supposed to fall into that. Now, what, the, what he explained was there was one, something he called the crazy cycle, which is where a husband and wife are fighting, and there's the descent from a normal or a misunderstanding and communication to, you know, you're both at each other's throats, and then it's, it's the big tailspin here, and we're going downwards, right? And he explains how every argument can really come down to these two basic premises, right? Let's just start with the guy. Let's say the guy... Uh, the husband is, says something off-color to his wife. <laughs> My wife's smiling back there. And uh, the wife receives that, and she says in her heart, he doesn't love me. He's taking his love away from me. Women, have, women were, were wired to be able to receive and crave love from their husbands. And it doesn't matter what else is going on. As long as that wife knows that her husband loves her, she's going to do well. Once she feels, perceived or otherwise, that the husband is pulling his love away, she starts to descent. And then she may respond with a cutting remark. Now, men are wired to be able to receive 
uh, respect and submission. That's just the way men are wired. And if the husband feels like the wife is disrespecting the husband or taking away or she or she's treating him like he's a nothing in the home or emasculating is a big word, but, you know, something to that effect. What happens is the man gets angry and then he's and then what happens is he gets nasty. She gets nasty. And before you know it, they're not getting anything from each other. And that starts the crazy cycle. It's an interesting concept and it is biblically based. There was a young officer that I was counseling. Um, you know, we had some downtime and we pulled up car to car and uh, he was in a bad mood and him and his wife had an argument. And I said, you know, what's the matter, brother? And he said, uh, you know, she tells me how to play with my son. She tells me this. She tells me that. I said, let me explain this. And this like took a few seconds. And I employed this. I said, you feel that she's disrespecting you, that she's, you know, looking at you like you're a nothing in the home. He goes, that's it. That's it. You got it. How did you get that? I said, because it comes from the Bible. It was really easy. It wasn't original. So you, you see what's going on here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this from all angles. The word submission in the Greek is hupotasso, and it's a military term. And what it means is that you would, would arrange troop divisions under a central leader. So it's authority under authority. In a civilian application, it's a voluntary attitude of submission. So the wife w- wants to submit to her husband's leadership and the, the ideal situation is that the husband is acting like Jesus Christ. So to the men, treat your wives like Christ treated the church. Really, to the men, to the husbands, you have to treat your wife in a way that you have to almost expect that you're not going to get the same in return. See, that's what Jesus did. Jesus put out the olive branch to the church. He died for the church, and the church treated him pretty bad. Even his own closest uh, friends deserted him at the end, but he still, he didn't say, you know what, I'm coming off this cross. These people are miserable. He stayed on the cross and he died for the sins of the world. So husbands, that's a high bar. So you have to actually look at yourself and put yourself aside for your wife. Okay, you can't say, well, I want it to be equal. So if the wife starts out and says, I'm going to submit to my husband's leadership, and at the same time, the husband says, I'm going to treat my wife like Christ treated the church, you're going to have a good, healthy marriage. All right? Now, the Bible also says that the wives don't have to submit to anything unbiblical. Now, this kind of, uh, unfortunately, Christian husbands do this, but if you're a Christian woman and married to an unbeliever, if your wife demands you to do something and it's unbiblical, you don't have to submit to that. It's clear, it's, it's right there in the scripture. My wife submits to me, to the point where, the pastor's wife, to the point where I even tell her, don't make any decisions in the church and the women's ministry unless you come through me. Now, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But let me, let me explain that in context. What I'm saying to her is, honey, if you make a decision and the decision doesn't go well, people are going to be mad at you. I love her so much. I protect her so much. I'm her covering that if, a, if there's a bad decision that's made, even in the women's ministry, you all need to come to me. Don't come to her because I'm the one who approved it. You see how I just covered my wife there? And she loves that. She loves that she's protected by me. Shaking her head. Keep an eye on her. <laughs> Now, understand that my wife submits to my spiritual authority, but if you get to know my wife, which some, a lot of you have, she's no shrinking violet. And I'd be a fool if I didn't take counsel from my wife at times. The Bible also says to submit to each other. My wife is a wealth of wisdom. She's a great teacher. And um, she'll say some things that are so profound sometimes, and I'm like, I'm using that in the message. <laughs> so, you know, it works. It works. Now, this is good because especially you young people who are, Thinking about getting married, you need to understand how men and women work. And it's not just all the the fireworks and the stars and, you know, he's so dreamy, she smells so good. No, no, no. 
There's a lot more to this, okay? A few aberrations, and then I'm going to tie it up here. And don't, you know, don't leave because both sides are going to get it. Um, <laughs> not following the biblical mandates, let's start with the wife. A wife who's overbearing and tyrannical, keeps her husband and her kids cowering to her bad behavior and tantrums, that's not a good thing. I actually saw a women's shirt that said, if mom's not happy, nobody's happy. Now, before you elbow your wives, guys, you're getting some too. Um, two, a common, well, not a common example, but common in our minds when we think about this kind of stuff is, what about a man that's abusive? I've been trained and been dealing with in, uh, domestic violence for 18 years as a police officer. I've locked up many men who have hit their wives. I've also locked up a few females. It goes both ways. But a man that's abusive, you know, some Christians have issues with these ultra-feminist groups. Well, I'd like to say this. I think a lot of these women in these groups arise out of getting tired of being abused by men. Some type of failure in, in a relationship issue. A woman who's just tired of being cheated on. A woman who's been let down by her father or grandfather or her uncle because of molestation issues. A woman who's been treated as a piece of furniture. Well, they're going to be like, I'm not taking this anymore. They want to be empowered. So these groups start up. So before we start chastising these ladies, you know, these militant groups, feminist groups, you know what? Try to understand where they're coming from. Try to build a bridge, make a dialogue. Again, a lot of it is because of the failure of men in society. Men haven't been doing their jobs. A man that is lazy spiritually or physically um, just carries a title and contributes little else. Well, we know that Genesis 3 this is great. Nobody's left yet. This is so awesome. Must be doing a good job. Uh, Genesis 3 tells us that a woman will eventually take over leadership in the home if a man is spiritually lazy. And you know, the Bible is very clear about that. And what happens is the woman will do everything because the man's lazy. And then what happens is eventually down the road she'll resent her husband. A lot of Christian studies have been done on this. Woman has no problem taking leadership of the home. And sometimes they do it very well because the man's not doing it. But, but eventually she'll resent her husband for having to do it all because God didn't wire, to, didn't wire her to do that. It's not the plan. Now, four, the caveat to all this is, you know, um, and I'm sensitive to people's feelings. There's some of you who come from divorce or are in a divorce some of you who are single parents, married to an unbeliever, you know what? God can do anything. And God can do great things with your children. Okay? And God can heal those relationships. Um, so at the very least, I want you to understand that I'm sensitive to those issues. All right? Now, on another subject, this is so cool because of, you know, I'm doing this study and it's amazing how God has world events sometimes line up with the teaching that I'm doing. I'm doing a study about men and women and their roles, and this thing comes up with Hillary Clinton, right? They thought that Obama might have picked her. Apparently he didn't. And then we get a, a, a bombshell dropped on us that uh, McCain picks Sarah Palin. How many of you have heard of her, the governor from Alaska? So I had a brother in the Lord, kind of a man's man, ask me, would you vote for a woman? I said, sure, I'd vote for a woman. Well, she's not running for president, but... So just let's take Republican and Democrat out of the way, because we could have had the discussion about Hillary. Um, would I vote for a woman? I said, my quick response actually was, if a woman supported my values and a man didn't, sure, I would vote for a woman. Why wouldn't I? I actually like this woman. Um, I don't know that much about her yet. Um, we're still learning about her. Uh, we could find out something terrible about her, so I'm not going to jump into the frenzy. But 
This woman, she's got five kids. Her oldest son is being deployed to Iraq next month. Her youngest child, she found out while she was pregnant, the child had Down syndrome, and she decided to go ahead with the pregnancy. She ran a small business. She was a mayor of a town in Alaska. She became the governor. She took on members from her own party, Republican Party, for corruption. I like her. I think she's awesome. Um, again, at first glance, this woman is like Superwoman. Would I, would I vote for somebody like that? I'm more excited about her than I am about McCain and Obama put together. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you. So let's talk about this. Let's explore this. Well, on Wednesday nights, I've been going through the book of Judges. There was a woman named Deborah. And Deborah was a prophetess. And she told Barack, no reflection on Barack Obama, <laughs> his name is Barack in the Old Testament, she told him, God is telling you, get up, assemble an army, and go fight against God's enemy. And he goes, oh, I'm not going to do it unless you come with me. So she said, fine, I'll come with you. <laughs> so she ends up being like a general in addition to a prophetess, and she was a great judge of Israel. She was a great military leader. Uh, so women in leadership, I wanted the teens to stay, and especially the young ladies, because I want to tell you, ladies, you can be all that you want to be. I support you. Ladies, you want to run for president, senate? You know, we certainly need good Christian women in our political system. You want to run to be, you want to be an astronaut or whatever? I mean, if you're part of this fellowship and you're in good standing, I'll write you a letter of recommendation. You know what? Shoot for the stars. Break through the glass ceiling. A cliche. Um, go, go get them. Now, if you want to be married, it's your choice. If you want to be married, what you're saying is, that I want to submit to the leadership of this man that I'm marrying. So understand that. Let's, let's get everything in perspective here. Women can be all that they want to be. If they choose to be a wife, which they don't have to be, you need to submit to your husband's spiritual leadership. And husbands, you need to have a spiritual leadership. Does that make sense to everybody here? <laughs> I had my wife shaking her head up and down a lot, so I know I'm doing a good job here. So... I just want to say one more thing about this. And, and guys, young men, again, she's cute. She smells nice. She, she's nice to talk to. It's nice to talk to somebody that, you know, you, you know, have a relationship and a dialogue. But guys, you know, if you think you're going to get married and you're going to continue to live the life as a bachelor, forget about it. Forget about it. When we moved, we had some help. Um, in my old church, we had, there's a big box truck, and the guys helped me move uh, my furniture from my bachelor pair to our home. And, uh, you know, my wife actually went to the men and said to them, there's a few pieces of furniture on that truck. Take them to the dump. <laughs> so, so, you know, guys, if you think you're going to get married and everything's just going to stay status quo, you can forget about it. So really, guys, ladies and guys, take this to heart before you get married. And the last point that I want to make about this is Ken Graves said it best, and I'm going to give him credit for it. He said that every man, every little boy, dreams about, fantasizes about being a superhero. And every little girl dreams about being the princess that's whisked away by the, the, the prince. And there are some differences in that. Uh, I feel, and me personally, I just share my personal feelings with you, I want to feel in my home that I'm the hero. I do. I want to feel like I'm the one who's protecting my wife and my son. I'm the one who's teaching them. I'm the one who's, you know, when the money comes in, most of it goes to them and not me. You see what I'm saying? I want to be that one. Do I always do a perfect job? No. But I want to be the hero to my home. And my wife wants to be swept off of her feet. She wants to know that, that I'm going to protect her. She wants to know that she's not vulnerable to people, 
that I'm going to be there for her and I'm always going to stand by her side. Okay? And guys, when we, when we get this, and ladies, when we get this, we get it. Okay? And our marriages will do well. So we'll leave you with that. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Children, obey your parents, and fathers, don't use your authority to exasperate your kids. I, I play with my son a lot. You know, he's getting to the age where we wrestle around, and we have a lot of fun, and he hurts me even more because he's getting heavier. But uh, we have a lot of fun. But sometimes I can take teasing a little bit too far, and he, he, I can tell he's getting upset. That's, you don't want to provoke your kids to wrath. And dads can do that. And, you know, you, you, we can do stupid things as guys, right? And you've you got to know when to cut it off. We, we need to use our authority in the home. We need to be that spiritual leader. But we don't need to abuse it. Because eventually your kids will grow up and they'll remember that stuff. And they won't like you, right? And, and for a lot of other reasons it's wrong. Dr. Spock taught uh, decades ago to raise your kids as they're your equals. Now, I believe in communication with our kids. I believe in fairness with our kids. I believe in love with our kids, but they're not your equal. If you're a parent, God has called you to be a parent, not their pals, because that's going to backfire on you too. When I was a kid, looking back, you know, my parents were divorced early on, and I craved boundaries from my parents. And you, some of you teens are smiling. You may not even agree with me, teens, but in your heart, you may not even know what you're thinking. Believe me, at this age, the hormones are, you know, you don't even know where you are. But I'm telling you, in your heart, teenagers, you crave your parents' boundaries. Because boundaries equal love. Love. I was a little wild when I was younger. And when my parents would rein me in, it showed me that they cared about me. It showed me that they loved me. And you know what? This is all so biblical in God's people. God's people has standards for his children. And God sets boundaries for us. Why? Because he's mean and wants to spoil our parties? No. It's because he loves us. That's why he sets those boundaries. As police officers, sometimes we go to a house and, you know, the call is a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, out of control. Now, I understand that there's a lot of factors that go into why teens become incorrigible. Um, but when I get to the home, it's almost as if in th this dysfunction took 15 years to manifest itself, and you want me to fix it in 15 minutes. can't do it. Now, as a Christian, I want to help as much as I can. I, I, some, I often make you know, repeat uh, you know, calls to the house to check on the family, to see how they're doing, to kind of be that authority figure that's a, a good authority figure to these teens. Uh, but, and, and some parents, it's tough. You know, they have another parent that's, that's working against them, and there's no solidarity in the home, and the kids exploit that. Kids are smart, right? So fathers, don't provoke your kids to wrath, and teens, you know what? Your parents love you. They put a roof over your head. They feed you. You'll see, when you get out in the real world, I want to move back in with my mom, you know what I'm saying? i got to make the bills. But... Uh, you know, you'll see when you get out to the real world how much the sacrifice that, that your parents made for you. That's really important for you to see that. And you don't see it right now. So, teens, you know what? Cut your parents some slack. They're not perfect. I'm not a perfect parent. You know, Jesus is the only, God is the only perfect parent. So, you know, it's got to work both ways. Uh, parents who are unconcerned, and this is the range, from the unconcerned to the harsh. The harsh is bad. It breaks the child's spirit. At times you want to break your children's will because their will is going to get them in trouble, but you don't want to break their spirit. And I've seen that. Parents that are so harsh, and the kids grow up, and they, just, they don't think they can do anything. They're just broken. 
That's, that's terrible because those years can't come back, although the Lord can restore and make better. And parents that are unconcerned. Um, you know what, guys, especially fathers, you want to teach your daughters, you want to teach them that when they choose a man, that the man's going to respect her. You want to teach your daughters that the first time she gets slapped by her boyfriend, it's time to find another boyfriend, you know? And my, my wife gave me a compliment. She said, when I met you, you reminded me of my father because my father was protective over me. You know, my father was the hero of my family. Uh, and, you know, guys, you want to teach your daughters to respect themselves and to keep pushing these guys out of the way until they find someone who's going to love them and treat them like ladies. Verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done, and there is no partiality. Servants and masters. The Greek is hoi douloi. Kai hoi kurioi. Now, in English, kurioi is also used for Jesus Christ. It's someone who's in a position over you. Now, the cool thing is, it goes back to the marriage thing. Um, this is not for husbands and wives. You know, wives don't look at their husbands as their masters. That's not the same Greek word that's used. And I explain that to you. Uh, now, to take this apart, what does this mean? And I'm going to try to break it down. I've heard slave master. There was slavery in the Roman Empire. Uh, indentured servant, creditor. There was, there was willful contracts where you would repay somebody with your work for somebody that you owed money to. Uh, and then you could even make the case some have made it between employee and employer. A little bit of a stretch, but you know we can look at these relationships. The first thing, I, I service versus sincerity. Again, think about our pro- pro- professions. Have we, ed- uh, have we ever uttered the phrase, look busy, the boss is coming? <laughs> You're all talking by the water cooler. Oh, look busy. The, the boss is coming. Do something. Pick up a file, right? I saw a bumper sticker that said, look, look busy. Jesus is coming back soon. I thought that was humorous. But we should do our jobs to the best of our abilities. And it's something that we're also teaching our children in the home. How is our work ethic, people, adults, parents? How is our work ethic? What are we teaching our kids? There's a lot of uh, mentality about entitlements. Everybody feels that the government owes them something. Are we teaching our kids that? Or like JFK said in his inaugural speech, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Do we teach our kids to be hard workers and diligent, right? Labor Day. It's perfect uh, discussion for this. Do we take the initiative at our jobs or are we just punching a time card? Now, some may say, and you may be right, my boss is a jerk. Dave, you better not say that. (laughs) My boss is a jerk and he doesn't recognize my achievements. But here... We see that our Lord sees. We really, we're working for Christ when we're good employees. And furthermore, if your co-workers know you're a Christian, you're representing Christ. You could represent him good in the workplace, or you could represent him bad. You're an ambassador. Think about an ambassador of the United States to Germany or to France or to you know, Nigeria, wherever it is. Okay, We're ambassadors. What kind of example are we setting for Jesus Christ? Because we represent him. Even as a volunteer, and this is a stretch too, how do we serve as Christians? Do we do a mediocre job or do we do a good job? I want to give kudos to our children's ministry servants because my son will come home and he'll start, 
he'll start talking or singing a song or something that he learns, right? And I'm like, I know I teach him the Bible, but I don't remember teaching him that. Would you learn that? Oh, Sunday school. The stuff that my son, the pastor's son, is learning in back here in Sunday school is amazing. So, you know, you're doing a great job. You're doing an awesome job. And you may not think anybody sees this, but even if I don't see it, God sees it. Last, last verse, verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Masters, give your servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is basically speaking to those who are in authority. And he's basically saying, you're in authority over others. Guess what? The Lord is over you. There's always somebody who's in authority over you. So keep that in perspective when you treat your servants the way you treat them. Now, the last point that I want to hit on is slavery. Okay? Historically, directly, and indirectly, slavery was actually bad for the Roman Empire. Good. It eventually, indirectly, in many ways, led to the collapse of Rome. Uh, at one point in time, 50% of the Roman Empire was in slavery. Uh, and it was purely economic. The Apostle Paul was a revolutionary, as Jesus was. Now, he didn't institute a revolt or an overthrow of the Roman slavery system because that only led to disasters. If you ever study history, Spartacus... Uh, I believe he was, uh, he was a slave and he was also a, a, a warrior and he led this big revolt and the Romans just decimated these people. They tortured them, they humiliated them. It was just a bloodbath. Now, in the United States, it's good that we got rid of slavery, but the country was kind of divided, which was good. So there was a, you know, God had worked it out, so slavery was abolished in our country. But in the Roman Empire, that wasn't happening. There were no, you know, groups like that. It wasn't a division over slavery. It was... The, the Romans thought it was good for us. So these poor people had no choice but to remain in there. So what Paul did was he changed society from the inside, which is what he got from Jesus Christ. He changed people one at a time. And what he taught was, this is amazing, he taught slaves and their slave owners to convert to Christ. And when they converted to Christ, they became like a family. It was no longer a slavery issue. It was more like a family. Uh, and you can see that in the book of Philemon. He tells Philemon, listen, I know Onesimus ran away. I know he could be punished. Kevin Hay taught this uh, a few months ago. But I'm, I'm asking you, as a brother in Christ, receive him. Not just as a runaway slave, but receive him back as a brother. So Paul and Christ changed the landscape of this whole slavery system from the inside out. Isn't that amazing? Because it wasn't going to happen from the outside in. So uh, the Bible didn't advocate slavery but it was a revolution, a spiritual revolution, which led to a physical resolution. So he did it the other way. So here's the conclusion in all this. We talked about some qualities, some characteristics. We talked about husbands and wives. But what's the main tie-in on all this? The four-letter word, love. Love is the bond of perfection. If we have the Spirit of God and we have love, everything falls into place. Number one, the putting on of the new man, the Spirit-filled life and the removing of the carnal man. Number two, falling into our proper marital roles, which cannot be done in the flesh. Number three, harmony in our homes and harmony in our professions. And number four, and like Paul says, whatever we do in word and deed, that Jesus is written all over it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always, Lord. We thank you for the...